0: Hello and welcome to another edition of The Publisher Lab. Uh, I am Tyler Bishop and uh, John Cole is actually not with me today because I have a special guest. I have Steven Reginald with me from uh, GearJunkie.com. And uh, I actually got connected with Steven through uh, a mutual friend uh, of mine. And uh, it it was really fascinating. I knew going into our conversation together that he had a journalistic background and that he had started this site a long time ago. Uh, But actually he goes into it, and it's really interesting because he really runs his site how a lot of really large publishers do, and he's been able to scale over time and has some really great insights on how to become or essentially how to deliver quality content over time and uh, I won't I won't spill the beans too much because he really delivers a lot of advice and information on the podcast and I'll let you hear it straight from him but uh, I don't want to waste any more of your time so I'm going to go right into our interview that I did with uh, Stephen Reginald from gearjunkie.com. All right. All right, everyone. I want to welcome Stephen Reginald to the podcast from from Gear Junkie. Stephen, uh, thanks so much for joining us today and taking some time out of your day to uh, to speak with us on the show.
1: For sure, happy to be here.
0: So I I kind of want to just dive. I, I mean, I think you and I were kind of chatting a little bit before the the podcast. Um, you know, you and I have just have just met, so I don't. I you know, we're just getting to know each other, and I, I already kind of find your background uh, a little bit fascinating. I think. It's going to make for some really interesting um, material for our audience. But uh, maybe tell me a little bit more about kind of uh, how you got on into this business and where you came from and, and uh, how that has led you to where you guys are at now.
1: Sure. So I am a journalist by training, went to journalism school. In my whole life, I've been a big outdoors guy. So my goal with Gear Junkie was really to blend my passion with my profession and build a publication in a column that talked about gear, so outdoors gear. I'm a big climber, skier, runner, paddler, kind of into all that stuff. I grew up in Minnesota, just kind of was born in a canoe almost. So, have always been into this stuff. I launched Gear Junkie as an old school newspaper column way back in 2002, and in 2006 launched GearJunkie.com, and have been bootstrapping it and uh, building it to where it's at today. So. Today, we have about a million monthly readers and a small staff of nine people. We're based in Minneapolis, and we try to be the new source for the outdoors industry. And we also still do gear reviews and adventure travel stories and video and other projects.
0: So that's, that's really interesting. I'm a fellow Midwestern. I'm from St. Louis, actually, Missouri myself. Um, um, and I think that that's one of those, that, that's one of the things I look back really fondly on is kind of the ability to kind of very quickly get into, uh, the outdoors and that sort of thing I find it harder and harder here in Southern California. Um, so that's interesting. The, the, what, what found you first, the, the, then the want, or I guess the bug to, uh, to be a journalist or the bug to be out, you know, uh, enjoy the outdoors and, and, and find yourself in that, in sort of that, that vein or that industry, um or do they just kind of find this you find this happy marriage between the two?
1: Definitely the outdoors and just my passion as a kid skiing and hiking and camping and backpacking all that stuff just was what I did and what my family did. And I guess it wasn't until high school where I started to write more and then in college kind of discovered journalism and I always followed these magazines, all the industry you know skiing and climbing and kind of the the publications you read when you're obsessed with these kind of outdoor sports and outside magazine and sort of just had this epiphany in high school, I guess, that I wanted to write about this stuff. And then in college, just furthered that and went to journalism school, not really knowing where I was going, but knowing that I wanted to write and work in media and if it could be in the outdoors, all the better.
0: That's, that's really, that's really interesting. I think, um, you know, it's one of those things that I, I hear this from a lot of folks in this industry quite a bit, which is, you know, they were big consumers of media at some point in their life, you know, and usually still are. Um, but at some point they, they you know, they used to read all the the different types of magazines or they were big consumers of news or information, whatever source that they're in now. Um, how what was the journey like? So you said 2006, you started Gear Junkie. What was that? What was that progress like? Because obviously you guys were still going strong and growing. Uh, in 2017. uh, It's more than a decade. Um, You guys, in a lot of ways, are veterans of this industry. So um, what what was that journey like for you?
1: I think the journey was very bumpy. Um, And even, as I said earlier, it actually launched in 2002 as a newspaper column. And then in 2006, it was a nationally syndicated column. 2006 realized I had, I was 25 years old, realized I had Uh, you know, 200 copy edited columns on my hard drive with images and own the rights to this material and thought I should launch a website. And at the time, the web was seen as kind of like the thing you do when you sort of fail at writing for print publications. Yet, I knew that there was movement there. And especially in the outdoors world, it's a little bit behind. And so I'm glad that I partnered with Guys, way back in 2006 to launch this, it certainly took four or five years before I could go full time. And then the last five years have been spent doing, you know, hiring people and scaling it. So, as I was building Gear Junkie in that initial period, I was writing for the New York Times and the Star Tribune locally here. And my beat was adventure, travel, gear, outdoors. So, I always was working as a journalist and blending. Uh, what I did with Gear Junkie into kind of the churn of what it meant to be an independent freelance journalist. And I think that grounding, working with the New York Times was really just an immense grounding in what it means to produce quality work. And even though I was writing about ice climbing and going to Belize and caving and really fun stuff, it still held to those same standards of fact-checked, copy-edited to the hilt published at the highest quality with great photography. And and a lot of that, those standards just became so ingrained in me that they helped as I built my own publication to sort of never let those slip. And we're not the New York Times for sure, but I use those learnings as kind of the basis of what we do to, day to day now.
0: Yeah. So that was something I was really interested in digging in with you more about was this journalistic background, because I think... We get a lot of perspectives on this show or just a lot of perspectives in, in this industry in general from digital publishers in the digital publishing world. And a lot of that ends up being uh, on the tech side or uh, on this show, we've had some perspectives from the ad ops side. But I think, you know, one of the things that I think is important that we don't lose as we as we talk about quality content and things like that is the power of things like journalism. And so um, I was interested in in hearing from you a little bit about your take on um I guess kind of the modern issue of, you know, quote unquote fake news or, you know, this idea that, you know, a lot of premium digital publishers are struggling with things like the duopoly, Facebook, Google, and these platforms making content a commodity. When you're someone like yourself that has spent a lot of time um, in the past and currently researching topics, um, you know, traditionally trained journalism, all that kind of stuff. um, How do you see the way that content has evolved over time?
1: It's a massive question, but I mean, the yeah, overarching is. thing is that good content will rise to the top, usually. I mean, this fake news phenomenon is a horrible bummer, and I don't, you know, it's that's, that's a whole can of worms you can't open right now. That's sort of the anomaly, I think. There was this fake news thing, and remains to be, with social media, uh, the shareability and kind of the quick skimming, that people do to share news that justifies their beliefs, that's that's pretty um, a horrible situation. I guess I continue to believe that when people click through, read, most of the time, there's a real big, a strong BS detector with most readers. And you can't really cheat on content. And it's either good or bad. It's shareable or not. So. I guess at the very core of your question is we produce good quality work that's fun and well researched and accurate. And we've done that for years and it seems to be a form that works.
0: So tell me a little bit more about, about that formula. So, um, you know, you mentioned before working for the New York times and, and, you know, like there, there's a lot of editing there. There's a lot of fact checking, that sort of thing. And I, and I, and I agree with you that quality content rises to the top. So maybe give me a little bit of uh, insight as to how you run some of your editorial teams, um, how, how, you, how you think about the research that, that you guys have done, in the, either do now or have done in the past for, for your content, for your site, and how you, how you guys essentially um, get things right.
1: I was at a conference last week where one of the presentations was this tool that helped you parse what is the audience. For your particular topic interested in, what's buzzing on social media, what's trending? And it went it just went on for an hour, all this sort of data research on audience, and is that's kind of what my staff does innately. We're very immersed in this outdoors world. We're all passionate about it. We know everybody in this space. We're on the social media around this space. So that's kind of number one, is like Identifying what stories, what topics you should cover, and zeroing in on the angle that needs to be covered, and that takes just—I don't know if you can cheat that with software. You know, it's—it's a qualitative thing. Like, how do you cover a news story about a, a national park shutting down? Did you know that this park also has the the largest ice climb that forms in North America? Maybe we should mention that in the lead, et cetera. So process starts with just having that expertise in our category and being passionate about the category and taking ownership caring about it and then number two it's just really simple we have an editorial team with an editor chief a managing editor a news editor and a copy editor and it goes through a cycle of edits and fact checks and copy edits and then it's published so it's a process that exists and in, you know, a thousand newsrooms in the U S we're just a smaller scale of that.
0: So it, I'd be interested to hear your, um, a little bit, if you'd be willing to share how you guys do some of your research for new topics or how your writers maybe approach, um, new ideas or new things that they want to write about. Um, I've always taken a very data driven approach to content. And I think that that's, as you mentioned before, that's the way, so sometimes innately that you guys maybe approach things in the past, but I think one of the things that, um, that humans do really well is being able to be on the front end of things and and have a good feel for maybe what is going to be popular or what is actual news um, before it's a piece of data that you can extract and measure and that sort of thing. So maybe yeah. give me a perspective on how you guys look at that and how you find stuff.
1: It's, again, we're on the ground. We're at the conferences. We're at the trade shows. We're on the mountain climbing. <sighs> we know these people. We're testing the gear firsthand. So to me, it's that primary source information that i crave as an editor it's not i saw this on facebook and now i'm regurgitating that message and reposting a youtube video sure we do that a little bit but it's more i ran a hundred mile race here's the gear that worked also i met that guy that actually fell off the cliff at the end and we got an interview with him so i don't know like i we're kind of the opposite we're not at all data driven on our content we're all very much immersed in this space and are using kind of our, um, you know, our connections in the industry and our social media is, is amazing because I have thousands of friends on my social media feed that are doing thousands of things and things in the outdoors world every day and can kind of just, you know, scan and see what's trending. And so it's more that very qualitative approach in that, gut feeling and it's our beat you know we know this as journalists so sure we look back at our data and we tweak things on a macro level but on a micro level we don't say well let's go write about uh hiking boots this week because they're selling better i mean we might do that because it's spring and people are buying their boots but we don't zero in on it maybe as much as we should honestly because this is just how journalism is done for the most part I kind speak. of crave those tools that can tell me, can tweak what we do. But what I always find is that the topic is overruled by the news, if that makes sense. So if there's, if there's news, if there's a new product, something breaking, a new law, that's much more engaging and interesting than a keyword that is buzzing on Twitter or whatever it may be. And you got to balance all of that. But for the most part, we're very qualitative in how we approach what we're going to do for content. We get up every day and sort of figure it out from there. We have an editorial calendar that's large scope, but it's very organic, super organic.
0: So I have a feeling... um... I know how you answer this next question, but I'm interested actually to know because it's something we get, I talk to people a lot about, and that is how important do you think it is, especially whenever you have um, like an, a niche or um, even kind of, even if you just cover a broad topic or something like that, how important is it to have writers or contributors uh, actually for that, that whatever that niche or that subject is to be their passion or to be something that they're involved with? Um, Do you think that that's important, or is that something that if you're a good journalist, if you're a good writer, you can kind of dive into just about any subject or niche? It's
1: both, and it highly depends on what you're writing about. I mean, nobody is passionate about the recycling industry, but I'm sure (laughs) there's a publication on recycling. I shouldn't say nobody. Maybe that's a bad example.
0: There's somebody listening to this podcast that's like, I'm that person.
1: (laughs) Very few people care about, uh, you know, honestly, even some some. Common things like just you look at a daily newspaper, and there's a lot of sections and a lot of stories that are kind of boring topics, boring but important, quote unquote.
0: Sure.
1: So, yeah, any journalist can do the work. I think when you actually are invested in something that can shine through, you also have this base level knowledge. So, if I asked you to write about uh, downhill mountain biking. You'd probably, I don't know if you're a mountain biker. But I'm not.
0: Probably, so it's probably a good example. You'd probably be starting
1: at zero, whereas I've biked many thousands of miles, know all the models. I'm starting at like 80% there on the story, where you're starting from like, okay, I'm going to go to Wikipedia and make sure I know the difference between a cross-country bike and a downhill bike. Yeah. So it speeds up the process of writing and content production, quote-unquote, if you already know the beat. Not only does it speed it up, but it also immediately you have this expertise. Number three, you have this probably Rolodex of context. I know the guy that won the 2016 Downhill Mountain Biking Championship. I'll call him and get a quote. He's my buddy. So you kind of like have this leg up immediately, whereas if like if I went and wrote about politics, I'd be at zero level. I know, you know, base level information about politics. I know nobody in that world really. So. I can go do it as a journalist for sure. I can use the tools and techniques that you learn in journalism school, but you're starting at a different level.
0: So, as a is, is is an operator of uh, of a large web property, let's let's pretend for a second you need to add contributors. Um, are you going to Are you going to go out and are you going to specifically try to find uh, some some contributors and writers um, that maybe have? that maybe don't have the experience with uh you know specifically things in the outdoor you know maybe they they have a completely different background or are you going to try to find people that are maybe passionate about what they do with maybe some some raw skills and being able to write and maybe coach them around journalism how what what, which which direction are you going to go down as a as a business owner
1: you want to find that sweet spot that's right in between someone who can write but is also core into the outdoors because we certainly have both scenarios we have guides and mountain athletes that can't really write but they're obviously very core and they test gear for us and we sort of get very rough draft articles from them and edit the heck out of them get them publishable that's not really ideal but it gives you great sort of primary source information at the other end of the spectrum yeah we can hire someone who is a journalist and can do the research and for many articles that's probably fine but it, it really depends kind of story to story
0: how how important has um, social media been to the growth uh, of your site? I know we I've talked to a lot of site owners in the past, and um, some of them said, "Hey, listen, we we started using social media just like everybody else, um, and it's a tool that we use." And then we've had other people say, "Hey, listen, if it wasn't for social media, we wouldn't exist today." Um, where do you where do you fall on that spectrum?
1: We are kind of like. social and search. So about 80% of our traffic, and I might need to update this, is from search. So we have a very strong long tail. And then every day, about 20% of our traffic is social. And we have some e-news and direct uh, type in gearjunkie.com traffic as well. But those are kind of the two big buckets. So, and it flexes. You know, if we have a viral story that is is huge on Facebook, then that might be half of our traffic for that day. So, It's extremely important to us, and we use each social channel really differently. Facebook, we use pretty much to get our articles out there and into the sort of social, uh, you know, we try to get those articles shared and catch fire, whereas Twitter, we see more as a communication tool and a PR vehicle that, you know, we have tens of thousands of Twitter followers, but we never get... Major traffic from Twitter. We do get major traffic from Facebook. Instagram's even more of kind of a PR vehicle for us. Yeah. It's a branding tool, and the other social media uh, outlets are used more sparsely by our publication.
0: Yeah, those are those are kind of the big three, right? Um, I'd, I'd be interested to know. Um, you mentioned Facebook. Um, one of the things we talk about on this show quite a bit is Facebook Instant Articles and AMP, both. Um, accelerated mobile technologies um have you guys explored either either of those are you using them currently at all
1: so i need my dev guy to get the specifics but our site was amp optimized whenever that came through a year and a half ago we don't use facebook instant articles never gone down that road we we want to sort of give a snippet of what we're doing on facebook but then drive people to our site and it is kind of, you know, we're doing more Facebook Live lately, so that's content that lives right on Facebook, never touches the the mothership of GearJunkie.com, but that's really a branding thing. We hope people click through to the site, but it's a place to build your brand outside of kind of your your home. And we recognize that even if it's not tit for tat, we're not making a dollar on this, but it gets your brand out there. People want to see that on, on their feed. They don't want to have to click through to the site. So for the most part, though, we use social media as a driver to get to your junkie.
0: Yeah. So that's interesting. So is, is Facebook Live, what percentage of the time that you invest in video would you say goes towards things on Facebook Live versus things that either live on your site or other platforms?
1: It's probably 10%, you know, okay. it's small. So we do big video production projects that are posted on hugehockey.com that we spend you know, many thousands of dollars and send crews out to film with red cameras and drones. And then on a Monday morning, we might do a quick Facebook Live. So video we see as kind of a, a wide area. Some of our projects are big productions and some are kind of in the middle. They're... Built in a day or two, and then Facebook Live is just we flip on the iPhone and record a new piece of gear that's in the office, or we have a guest in the office. So we treat it very loosely, very informally.
0: Interesting. Um, the the so how you guys do video? So I know for a lot of publishers, um, they they either got their start in video and they've expanded into other things, or they've started in content and then they move towards video. Um, because they because they were able to build an audience, they were leveraged one against the other. How do you view video in the mix of things that you do, uh, and how do you see it moving into the future?
1: We we used to put it on kind of a pedestal. Oh, we're making a video on this, and because it used to be a bigger deal, right? Five yeah. years ago, and now we certainly do those bigger, high gloss productions. We have a. Film in the Banff World Tour this year which is a prestigious outdoor film festival tour so we're super proud of that. That's one end of our spectrum with video. And then we have a staffer right now creating social media type videos that take him half a day to make. So I guess how we deal with video is we treat it kind of like we do our content, we our articles. We might produce say a quick blog post one day and then we might build a six uh, you know 3000 word feature story the next and So video to me is a wide open bucket, and depending on what the project is, what it justifies, and what our budget is, we'll we'll treat it in one way or another. Kind of strategically, we're still figuring out what the mix should be with video versus written articles, versus social media posts, versus other things we do. And that's kind of an ever moving target, but the reality is video is much more time consuming and it's also not our native thing. You know, I'm a newspaper journalist; that's my thing, and that kind of seeps to my team. So, to do video, we actually have hired a guy that only does video. He never has worked at a newspaper. He just has a different context, mm-hmm. and that's our evolution there.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, we're we're running a little bit low on time, but I have two more questions I want to ask you. And they're kind of more like, uh, I guess they're 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 less in the weeds than these last two. Um, I guess the first one is uh, when I see somebody that's been been doing this for over a decade, one of the things I always like to ask, and I think people can benefit from quite a bit, is what is the smartest thing in the last, you know, more than decade that you have done um, that has benefited you or, or your site or or pretty much anything? If, if you were to pick one thing as it relates to your site that you've done in the last 10 years that you thought, man, that was a smart thing. I'm glad I did that. What was it? <laughs>
1: That's a huge question. That's it a is. hard question. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, it's
0: sorry, but it's a good question.
1: I, it is really good. I think consistency and quality, maintaining consistent output and maintaining quality and not jumping too far into one trend or another, because every year with, as a digital publisher, there seems to be another avenue that we should go down. So, just maintaining my roots as a journalist and a writer that cares about what we're putting out there every single day for the last 10 plus years has been really the backbone of what we do. So that's, that's the one thing, even though it's kind of one thing we do every day.
0: I think that's really great advice. And, um, the second question is, um, it's kind of the antithesis of that is, what is one concern or challenge that you see in the future of, whether it's, it's your space specifically, um, or just the digital public, publishing space overall, um, that, that either concerns you or challenge or problem or something that you see on the horizon?
1: I think the fractured nature of being a digital publisher, you can do a million things and we have done a million things and most of those things did not work so well. So <laughs> it's kind of the schizophrenic nature of what it means to publish online and knowing, what, knowing how to be efficient, where to spend your time, what to chase and what to turn down. So moving the ship slowly once you have an established ship, you know, we can't all of a sudden turn into a video publication because people have been reading us for years. We can't start publishing on some new. Uh, we can't start publishing on Facebook when people are used to getting our e-newsletter and clicking through to the articles. But you got to keep up with that stuff too. So you can't be too traditional. You got to ride that line. So, it's always been a caveat for me is. There are so many opportunities that you need to kind of be careful. Try to pick the best ones, and if something doesn't work, pivot and move on quick.
0: Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I think that that's, that's how a lot of public publishers like yourself have been able to be around so long. Like you said, there's there's always going to constantly be opportunities to pursue new things, and some of them will work for some and some of them won't work for others, but it's that ability to pivot that I think has benefited quite a few you publishers.
1: you got to be nimble, and you got to be very quick. I mean, those are two things also. It's just turning content, breaking the news, getting the scoop. That's what people want. They want to be the most updated in their sphere, about the thing they're passionate on so just being quick and being nimble being able to adjust has been a big benefit
0: yeah it's a quick and nimble sort sort of the same kinds of things that can keep it from falling off a mountain i suppose
1: exactly man <laughs> <laughs> same ethos
0: yeah you mentioned that earlier i was i was curious to know how, how many times you guys had to write about somebody falling off a mountain by the way that would be me i'd be the guy that was falling off a mountain i'm afraid
1: yeah well sadly the world's most famous mountaineer at least one of them died two days ago so it was you know it was, a, it was on sunday morning i guess it was and i got a text from my managing editor i was driving up north to go on a trail run and we just got the news so we had to produce that article in a half hour and get the news out there so yeah. Wow. um yeah Uli so man i knew and admired and really tragic story out in nepal but it's, it's fortunately a small part of what we cover, and for the most part, climbing is actually a very safe sport. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it, there, there's actually more injuries in skiing and mountain biking than something like climbing for the most part, but it kind of goes with the territory. You know, you're up high, and there's uh, falling rocks and gravity, so it's a dangerous environment for sure.
0: Definitely. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. I think it was a thrilling conversation um, and hopefully all of our listeners can take away some of the things that you've been able to learn over the course of your career. So thank you again, Stephen, for joining us.
1: All right. That's fun. Thanks a lot.
0: And that concludes our interview with Stephen from Gear Junkie. It was a really fascinating conversation and I hope everybody enjoyed it. I want to remind everyone to continue to Uh, leave us reviews on itunes those help us a ton to continue to bring you great content because it helps us grow the podcast and um, continue to kind of devote our time to this so we're happy for everyone that sends us great messages telling us and encouraging us to continue some of the things that we're doing so um, thank you for those and then also you can follow us on twitter at at it's the best way to reach us it's where we share stuff that we talk about on the podcast and that sort of thing Um, so yeah thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time on the publisher lab